when you have the kind of job that we have, which is like writing about food, every single person in your life constantly asks you where they should have dinner. Like you're just constantly being asked for restaurant. I actually wish people asked me that more, but oh, I'm going to start sending people to you because I get it all oh, the yeah, time. For real, do that. So today in the Eater Upsell Studios, Greg and I are going to be having a conversation with Alex Rye. Alex was one of the first chefs to really bring authentic Spanish-style tapas to New York. Over a decade ago, she like really helped ignite the Spanish obsession in the New York restaurant scene. And particularly in the last couple of years, as this issue has been more and more in the news, been one of the most outspoken women chefs about what it is like to be a quote-unquote woman chef. Here's the new thing that I ask people when they ask me where they should have dinner and it like freaks them out, but it always gets us to the right answer. It's what story do you want to tell about yourself? And wow. It, <laughs> which is like a little too, I mean, it's like too real maybe, but like if you're asking someone for a restaurant recommendation, it's usually because you have to go out to dinner, right? It's not like, oh man, I have nothing to do next week. Why don't I have dinner somewhere and I'll ask Helen where to go? It's like, I have a cool date or like my parents are in town or I'm taking someone out who's important to me. And if you're turning to your friend who's a food editor for dinner advice, it's usually because you want the inside track on something that's like cool or interesting or particularly amazing. So what I say is like, well, okay, like who do you want to be in front of the person you're taking out? Do you want to go somewhere that's like super sceney and it's going to be like full of models and celebrities and you can be like, yeah, like this is just like my cool New York life. Or do you want to like, be someone who's like chill and effortless and like super hip. I mean, like there there are different ways to tell a story. I love this because our tastes define us. That's the truth. They do. They do. Our tastes define us. But also like we are different people when we're on a first date versus being out with our boss versus taking our mom somewhere where her hearing aid will work. Sometimes in the course of the same meal. Always. Yeah. Like there's this restaurant on the on the Lower East Side called Beauty in Essex that opened like a really long time ago by restaurant standards, like many years ago. And it's it's this perpetually packed small plates, like horrible investment bankers and the beautiful women who love them kind of restaurant. But the food the food is is far better than it has any need to be. It's kind of the best restaurant of its niche genre. I think, yeah, without a doubt. And and it turns out with surprising frequency that that's the restaurant I recommend to people when I ask them who it is that they want to be. Because they're like, I want to look like hip and insidery and like I'm part of this sex in the city-ish New York and like whatever and the thing that Beauty and Essex has going for it that is like crazy and I wish all restaurants had this is in the women's bathroom there is a bar staffed by a woman bartender who is pouring complimentary glasses of pink champagne it's just the best yeah it's the best move it's like genius and I mean I, I feel like I shouldn't even say this in something that will be like broadcast in public but like you can just walk into the restaurant and go to the bathroom if you're a girl and have a glass of champagne and sit down on a couch and then just like leave. One reason I think it always works in favor of the house is that usually, um, well, let's say that it's a traditional heterosexual date scenario. And there is a, a person who could not go into a women's bathroom involved in this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to venture a guess and say that there's maybe a lot, mm, a big portion of the crowd going to beauty S and Essex is that it's like standard, like one dude, one chick kind of date. Yeah. Or like five dudes and five yeah. ladies going together. Uh huh. I think I see where you're going with this. I think you're going to be right. And the guys get abandoned at the table and the ladies are in the bathroom and they're like, Hey, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Like what is so exciting? Like, why are they like, it kind of creates this, I don't know. It 
it, like mystery yeah. I, yeah and then i think it might make them drink more oh yeah totally totally because they get kind of like nervous about it the men yeah i bet that's true because it's like what are they doing down there yeah what are they saying and as a woman who has gone to the women's bathroom with a gaggle of women and talked about the men we were on a group date with like yeah that totally happens and it gives yeah and it gives the posses a chance to kind of yeah to like regroup, to regroup. check in be mm-hmm. like all right man like i think the blonde is more into you or be like i hate this i'm never going back out there <laughs> it's true it's but true. it somehow creates this also this other allure of that place that it's like yeah no it is i it mean makes man, it like difficult what, it something. opened like seven years ago and here we are talking about it yeah like, it's a stunt, but it's one that like paid off and had real stick in power. I remember hearing at one point also that they do like 900 covers a night. So I would not be surprised. That place is a machine. Yeah. Got to give it up to the classic New York just restaurant machines. That's true. Like they, they have no soul, but they have a lot of style. Today in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by a really cool chef, Alex Rye. She has a cluster of restaurants in New York City that she operates with her husband. And these restaurants serve Spanish food, regional Spanish food. She kind of introduced the notion of regional tapas to New York City. Alex is the chef of three restaurants, El Quinto Pino, Chiquito, Mm -hmm. and La Vara, which is one of my favorites in Brooklyn. Lavara is just a team eater favorite, I would say. <laughs> and eater, yeah, specifically has been incredible. I mean, they've always been very supportive of us. Yeah, I know if you need to find an eater editor, just like check out the bar at Lavara. <laughs> <laughs> so all three of your restaurants are Spanish restaurants, but they all kind of cover different parts of Spain, right? Yeah, or different. Yeah, or the, different the, yeah, they tell different stories. Yeah, yeah. So what's the breakdown? La Bar is the most improvisational one. I call it like the love child between like my husband and I because it's a Spanish restaurant that is inspired by this notion of the contributions of Jews and Moors in Spanish cuisine. But in Spain, those influences are really sublimated kind of or not. They're just not talked about at all, but they're so obvious to people who are involved in food. I like sort of digging around for that stuff and then sort of doping it up. And it's it's kind of like a Spanish restaurant that looks towards sort of contemporary Middle Eastern flavors. I feel like there's definitely that Middle Eastern note in things like romesco and, yeah, you know, the like nuts and red peppers and like heavy spices and that whole sort of southern Spain. Like, oh, yeah, you are definitely right across the Mediterranean from a whole different palette. So how did you come to New York? What was the... I came here to go to culinary school. I was living in, on the West Coast, and I didn't have a culinary degree, and I just thought I should get one, and then I was going to go to the community college there, and my parents were like, you should try to go to the best school you can go to, and they helped me, and so I came here. Awesome parental support. I know. Yeah. yeah. I feel like a lot of a lot of times when we talk to chefs, like their parents were not super into the idea of them becoming cooks. Were your parents... They on board with it? No. Well, they they weren't into it when I was just cooking, you know, without the piece of paper. But I think that when when I sort of had the guts to like really embrace it, you know, I think part of they weren't supportive, but I also think they they didn't think I was being very decisive. And so once I became decisive, they became incredibly supportive. So I think you just have to kind of stick to your guns and then parents will get behind you. I knew I know I felt a long time like I wasn't being supportive but I don't think I was sort of making my case either. <laughs> Where'd you go to school? ICE? Or? No, I went to the CIA in Hyde Park, which I loved because I loved living up there. 
It's a beautiful campus. It is. And I lived like in Rhinebeck for the first while of it. And that was great. I like it. I, I'm not a huge city person, and that was great. So are you Spanish? No, I'm Jewish and um, Argentine. My parents are both from Argentina. And so I was a first-generation Spanish-speaking kid, which I think made me, I don't know, just really comfortable in the cuisine. Like, any time I met a dish, I already knew it, kind of. You know, my mom made a lot of paella when I was growing up, but she would use, like, long-grain rice. <laughs> and and then, you know, later found out, oh, that's not really paella what my mom was making. She was making arrozabanda, which is, like, you know, a, a semantic difference for some people but it's like a huge difference for Valencians or you know so I think I just had like a a very intuitive easy relationship with Spanish food and so it just kind of grabbed me I felt like it sort of captured all my interests as a cook when did you start getting into it well I took a job at a Spanish restaurant that was opening in New York in 1999 when I was leaving culinary school but I really was it wasn't that I was interested in Spanish cuisine. I was interested in going to Spain to work at El Bulli, which was, you know, not very open to sort of international people at the time. It was all like young Spanish interns. Why was that? Was it just like... It was new. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people knew about it. I mean, I had just read about it in Food Arts Magazine, you know, while I was like in the library, like at the CIA. And I, I was fascinated by it and I had this other plan. And so I thought if I could just get there and work there and then go home, then I, would, I that was all I wanted to do. And so I thought if I took this job at the Spanish restaurant where this guy had worked for Martin Brasategui, I thought I would be able to like sort of get those relationships and, and get in. And now it's much easier. I would I mean, now Bouillie's not there, but it is easier to work in Spain if you want to. If you're an American mm-hmm. chef? Or if you're an American young cook. I mean, I think it's hard to be a chef and like take time out. So did you ever do the traveling chef, young chef thing? Did you go to? I didn't. I mean, I never cooked abroad, sadly. It's one of my biggest regrets. It's not too late. I mean, uh, it kind of is. Why don't you just, just dodge somewhere? Yeah, you know some leave people. Leave your three can... really successful restaurants and intern. I feel like I would be a lame stock. Like, I would be in the way. Or, like, I don't know. I, w- I would love to. I Maybe someone will hear this and invite me. <laughs> so as a young chef in New York, you worked at that Spanish restaurant or Basque. What was it called? Mirror? What was your? Megas. Megas. Yeah, that's that's the job. That was the job that I was trying to like get my like Spanish contacts. I ended up meeting my husband. That's a Spanish that's contact. A great, yeah. I agree. It was a lot. It was a lot of contact. <laughs> Maybe too much contact. And yeah. he's he's from the Basque region in he Spain, is. right? Yes. So, and I have this weird thing that happened to me when I was in the Basque region um, that I was telling Greg about that which I think I might have told you about when it was happening. It was so bizarre. My husband and I went to the Basque region of Spain on our honeymoon, and we spent a night in Bilbao. Uh-huh. And we were wandering around, and we had like totally messed up the timing of dinner in uh-huh. Bilbao. Like It was earlier than we realized it was, because we were like, oh, it's Spain. We'll have dinner at like, midnight, and you don't do that in Bilbao. Or Maybe least, not on, I think on Sunday, everything is closed there or something. I mean, there's weird stuff. That, yeah, yeah, it was, like we clearly had not been clued into some code. And the only place that was open was Cafe Aruña, Oh. And we went into this restaurant and it's a bar and they only have one like food item and it's these incredible 
lamb skewers that are yeah. covered in cumin and like doused in lemon juice and they're charcoal grilled and they're served with like a hunk of bread on the end and I was like this is great this reminds me of my favorite dish from when I moved to New York in 2004 which was the lamb skewers at Tia Pole and my husband was like shut up and I was like no this is amazing and then I started googling it after we had had a couple of drinks and it turns out you were the chef at Tia Pole when it opened I was in the chef and owner and owner and um and those skewers my husband's dad worked for that restaurant for that restaurant he does PR he did PR he's retired now um for Cafe Unidos which owns Cafe Irunia and our skewers were totally inspired by those um and I had those at my wedding too (laughs) (laughs) and I was like my husband was like like shut up Helen like you see connections everywhere there's not a connection I was like no this is real and it was so validating yeah so I feel like that's indicative that story of something I think a lot of people give you I mean justly credit for which is this idea of serving specific regional dishes and did that all start at Tia Pole? Was that the Tia Pole menu? Well, no, that menu, yes, but that menu like sort of pre-existed that restaurant even. I mean, my husband and I were planning that for many, many years before. So yeah, that was the menu. The menu was to take you on on a trip around Spain with wine and food and choose. Who wouldn't want to do that, you know? Exactly. But at the time, it was also to like re, to set a new standard for Spanish cuisine by purposely not selecting the items that people at that time associated with Spain because I felt like this sort of state of Spanish food in New York was it was in particularly good shape because they weren't using really good products, which is the key to producing good Spanish food. And so I didn't want to have things like gambas al ajillo until we did like the head-on shrimp. I didn't want to have paella. I didn't want to have anything that people could relate to this substandard Spanish cuisine that that would that had you know come out of not professional cooks using not great ingredients just to create the the foods that they were used to from home. You know, it was like people came over here and were working in construction, like or even in meat markets. I mean, definitely what's really cool is that West Chelsea was always like a Spanish area. And so I felt like it should be in West Chelsea. It should be just redefined. That know, was like, the inspiration sort of set the everything straight. Yeah, but I didn't, um, at the time, th- my partners were the ones that had the real estate and I had the concept. So there was a little bit of drama around your departure from Tia Pole mm-hmm. when... Um, the restaurant opened in, it was 04. Mm-hmm. And then how long were you there? From the beginning in, until 2007. I, I mean, until after we opened El Quinto Pino. And I, I remember being like shocked and horrified that you were leaving. I was shocked and horrified <laughs> too. And um, yeah, it was not, it was not a beautiful ending. <laughs> so was that an experience where you learned something? Do you think I became a better business person? I became a better restaurateur? Was I was it just... a really good business person before. And then that place was pretty much like, at the time, a gold mine. A lot of people have copied it and are doing really well. <laughs> a lot of people kept it and are still doing really well, I'm sure. I was not an unsavvy business person. I had a really good agreement. And, you know, you don't... Just because you have an agreement doesn't mean that you don't have to enforce it. And, you know, that's what I learned is like what I would tell young cooks would be, you know, whatever your agreement, no matter how good it is, like make sure that it has an arbitration clause in it. Because if you have to go to court to defend your rights, 
that's a very expensive proposition, and there are some people who are counting on it being too expensive for you. So that's you have to be careful. I feel, and like that's like what I'm. I would share with anybody is arbitration clause. Wow. Good, good agreement and arbitration clause. I feel like a lot of young chefs get really excited about learning how to cook and don't really think about learning how to run a business or be a business person or look out for things. I mean, even stuff like recipe development or like who owns a recipe. And I was I was talking to a chef the other day who who recently left a relatively high profile restaurant and they're still serving all of her mm -hmm. all of her desserts and she's like, well, um, I, but you can't. I don't think, I mean, I don't, unless you have like this like idea of like intellectual property in your agreement, which I would, again, that I guess that's another lesson. Don't put your intellectual property, don't attach your IP to any concept because nobody can own your recipes or keep you, you know, from making them. But if you, if you attach all that stuff, you roll that all stuff in, nobody can take that from you. But if you give it away, you've given it away, you know, like don't give it away. There are so many restaurants in the city that are playing someone else's hits now. Oh, that's true. Everything's I mean, a remix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's well, it's, I think, you know, I like it when the press notices. I mean, for me, it's not who is doing it or what they're doing, but it's nice for people to have a memory, like a collective memory. And I mean, it'd be nice if people would just say this is inspired by or whatever. That's what I try to do. Like we have dishes that we actually call, you know, like. When we opened Chiquita, we opened it to serve two dishes. Like, fundamentally, one was totally our own, and the other one was the whole turbo from Elcano. And we put it on our board, and it says, whole turbo Elcano style. And there's seven or eight rest restaurants that serve... There's a million restaurants in, in the Basque Country that serve whole turbo. But for me, the iconic one was, like, Elcano. Cocktail bars have started doing a lot of attribution i think like there's yeah, think there's a record nice. with cocktails you know it's nice you look at the menu and be like oh yeah the penicillin was invented by the guy whose name i forgot who invented the penicillin right. but like the name goes with it it's funny you know? though there was a bar i guess it closed or changed called the golden cadillac and they mm -hmm. had a cocktail on the menu that was a bent it had a benton's bacon wash oh yeah bacon and wash we were bourbon. discussing in the office like so if PDT exactly invented that and put that on the menu, can you just appropriate that? Now it's just something everybody can do? Well, you right. can't copyright the concept of a recipe. You can only copyright the specific language of it as mm -hmm. a written document. Yeah. This right. is why stuff like Coca-Cola or KFC, they keep like, everything secret. They keep it secret because right. as soon as it's out there, you have no control over it. You just have to never tell anyone or like or like Eddie Van Halen playing the guitar facing away from the audience <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say though as a I love that I never I never would have compared that to that's hilarious it's like no don't look at what I'm doing you know <laughs> I will say I'm like very proprietary and I get very frustrated about this kind of stuff and um and I don't get frustrated that people like use or take I get frustrated that people don't call them out and and so I think you know or that they don't call themselves out kind of like it's not nice it's one thing if like you're in atlanta and california but if you're like in the east village and in brooklyn or you're in the east village and the west village that's not cool like at least just like give a little homage or just you know like, i mean as a diner i love seeing any sort of attribution i on do a menu. too i think it's fun i think it's cool it connects it you can connect it creates yeah. a story it, and a community yeah and, like, it makes yeah. it bigger than that one dish in that restaurant i yeah. agree i agree and in fact, for Valentine's Day one year at Tia, 
we did a love letter to all the chefs that we loved. And that night, the specials were all dishes from other cooks. And we did Rebecca Charles's lobster roll, pinto style. We did a bon mi, like from that so one place over, you know, on Kenmar Grand Street. I forget. It was a long time ago, but it was like a foie gras bon mi. We messed up Wiley's uh, fried mayonnaise. <laughs> um, we did pork buns, and Dave brought me the buns. Oh, and, wow. um, and I mean, That's you know, it was really fun. Cute. It was really, it was really cute, and it was really fun. And um, and so I guess maybe that's why it bothers me just because I really do appreciate what cooks do and the integrity of them. And I defend like my friends a lot, well, you know, like those pork buns are probably the most ripped off dish in America or the world right now. Maybe it's not even ripping off at this point. It's just like entered the vernacular. It's, a, it's, it's like traditional. Yeah. yeah. I remember when the Momofuku cookbook came out, there's a recipe for the pork buns in it. And he has the recipe for making your own buns like this sort of so hard and it was so hard and he had this tiny little line at the bottom or maybe it was at the top but he was just like we don't make these from scratch we buy them here's the name of the bakery where we buy them from because if you want to make these from scratch you're an insane person Mm -hmm. but like now you go to these restaurants like all over the country and they're like we make our own like spongy bun bread and it's like not even freaking david chang does this like you're ripping it off farther than it needs to go well because i think it's well a lot of people are next to their own corn or grinding their own flour now it's like we're it's like a diy thing like i also am like very much like dave or like it's not so much that i don't want to make it but if you can't make it better don't make it like i don't you know go home and make dumplings for my kids i go to hester street and i buy them <laughs> because I can't make them any better. Like it doesn't show more love to like <laughs> to make a bad dumpling. So you've got three restaurants, uh, two in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. I've always understood that you and your husband are very active in the kitchens and still creating and still cooking and doing all that stuff. And I know recently, just reading Eater New York, you guys were maybe looking at other spaces. So three restaurants seems like a lot for a team, a small team in New York. What is the impetus to do more? What, what, what do you want to do next? Well, I want to send my son to the same school I'm sending my daughter to. <laughs> Great. Uh, for starters. I want to keep sending my daughter there. But really, I think it's like I'm the, I'm the one that kind of always wants to tell another story. And my husband's the one who's like, all right, should we be doing this? But I mean, so far, we've, you know, we've had good ideas that, that worked in, in neighborhoods that have um, embraced us. We're not opening, and we're not being offered, you know, huge opportunities to, like, have restaurants, like, built out for us. And Atlantic City's not calling you up and saying, not hey, calling let's do me. Chiquito. They're not. They're like, they would be calling me and being like, let's do Tuxedo. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, they're not calling me. So that's what we do. We do that. And um, and we're only as good as our leases. And our leases are, you know, ticking down at different places. And so we're like, well, where would we put it next? Or what story would we tell next? You've been very forthcoming in the press to talk about you know, being a mom and being a restaurateur. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that Helen and I were discussing right before this is... Like, you are the the chef that people talk to about what it's like to sort of be a really, like badass hardcore amazing chef and restaurateur and also like very demonstrably prioritize and value your family life Mm -hmm. so what is it what is it like to constantly be asked what it's like 
Like I don't mind people asking me because I love talking about my kids and I'm very nostalgic about childhood. I think that's one of the reasons I cook is because my mom cooked with us. Now my kids probably hopefully will not cook because I don't cook with them that much. We do other things and year to year we've been having more and more time together but but yeah, we work a lot and our kids have an amazing, you know, babysitter during the week who like make sure that they go to like their after school stuff or like schleps them around and then we get home. One of us gets home usually in the evening. We don't we don't live very balanced lives. I feel like it's sort of all or nothing with us. Last year we took a month off. Crazy. Wow. We were staffed, we had like amazing people like on and this year that's not going to happen. And and we still have amazing people and stuff, but we just like don't have like this like you know a couple of key people that that we were really comfortable. And we were never planning to take a month off. We we rented a cabin an hour from here so we could get back and commute every day. We stayed there, and I think the other times like people we came back, it was just because we needed a break from each other. Like we like you know like I'm gonna go check in, you know. But like our staff was was doing an amazing job. When you give people responsibility, I think they usually rise. So yeah. I wish, you know, that we could do it every year. Do you and your husband work in the same restaurant at the same time, or do you sort of, like, split it up and have a rotating schedule? Or We do work together, but um, we do very different things. And so we're, like, a lot of times we're, like, sort of ships crossing, like, even today, you know. Like, usually one of us gets up in the morning, I mean, just routine-wise. Like, one of us gets up in the morning and takes one of our kids to school, and the other one takes the other kid to school because they're at different schools right now. And so the one who takes my daughter, who's older, she goes to school in Brooklyn, goes to Lavara. The other one just comes straight to Chiquito. Do they like the restaurants? Do they feel comfortable there? Or is it like, mm, this is where mom works? No, they do. No, they do. <laughs> I, I mean, when my daughter was born, like, I went to work like six weeks in because my my husband had to have knee surgery. And so I would bring her in with me. But even from the very beginning, even in the first six weeks, I think I brought her and like my general manager was like, you need to not bring her to work anymore. And I, like it was like a real wake up call. But like when you're used to going to work every day, you don't really know how not to. So that was kind of funny. So my daughter like spent a lot of time in the restaurant earlier and then not at all. Like because then I was just like, let's not do this and let's not have her here. Even though, you know, when I was little, I wished I could have grown up in a restaurant. Like, I loved, like, going to Chinese restaurants with my parents and seeing the kids in there, like, doing their homework. And, like, there's something kind of romantic about it. Like, yeah. having this child. And you know that, like, the kids who sort of grow up in, the, like, sitting under the counter in the kitchen in their parents' restaurant, like, will tell the best stories when they're 50 or 60 years old. Like, they're going to write the amazing memoirs. They do, but they're also, a lot of them are really resentful. The, of the restaurant itself, like, I mean, not my kids, but, like, I I have talked to people who just felt like that restaurant was, like, this, like, wall between them and their parents, you know, like, they're very demanding, restaurants are, and it is really hard. Do you think about that balance, or is it just sort of something that naturally resolves itself? I don't think about the balance so much. We're, I mean, we're in a good place now. Like, we're one, you know, one or both of us was able to spend you know, some time at home in the evenings. But I, you know, I've had guilt. Like, um, I don't have guilt about not necessarily having enough time. I sometimes feel guilty about, you know, whenever I've had to disappoint my, anytime you have to disappoint your kids when you're a parent, it's, you feel bad about it. And I don't think, I think that a lot of have a monopoly on exactly, that. <laughs> exactly. But it, but it feels like, because it's, you know, like vocational, 
to disappoint your kid when you have a restaurant. Like, you might not be able to show up at, you know, play or, like, you know, like, it's June 4th is carousel day at, like, my daughter's school, and all the parents are going to, like, take the kids to, like, the, you know, Prospect Park carousel, and I won't be there. And normally I could. I have a really – I can do whatever I want. I own the place, but I'm shooting – we're shooting our book that day, so I won't be there. The book. We didn't talk about the book. The book is super exciting. It is. Your first book – yeah, the first one that we're writing, like, you know, cover to cover. We've participated in a couple others. And it's, is it, the title still Welcome Basque? No, but. <laughs> that's what it was announced as. Because 10 Speed, that. I liked it too. I'm glad you liked it. 10 Speed, 10 Speed was like, no. They're like, you're diminishing the importance. And I, and I was like, well, you went to on your honeymoon to the Basque Country. So everywhere you go in the Basque Country, there's this these signs that say, Ongi Etori, which means welcome. In Basque. So it wasn't just to be punny. It was because they're punny. very hospitable. <laughs> I know. I know. They do that. So what's the title now? Now it's Basque in all capitals. And then it has a subtitle, which, you know, I don't know if I should say. Like, I feel like, she, is, don't you want the surprise? Is it going to be like the Basque font? Like, because when you're in the Basque, you're this I want it to be the Basque typeface font. that like is um, everywhere. I know. I and know I love this. that. Oh, it's great. It's I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like I mean, if you're if you're a typography, it's like bubble, nerd, letters, it's like bubble letters with really huge serifs, and like the T's come down really like every single thing is written in this. I love it. Typeface and it's uh, yeah. or hand lettered. It's so weird and it's cool. It's very Hobbit like like. But you know, I yes, in small doses is how I described it to the what, no. What would you which be called the art director? So yeah, there will be some Basque font there. I don't know if it'll be right on the cover or elsewhere in the book. Everything will be written, all the recipes in Basque font, right? Yeah, that would be because you go cross-eyed. You go cross. Well, you should like release a special edition or something. It's like it'll be like chiseled out of wood. Totally. It'll be branded into the wood. Oh my god, that's amazing! So, is this going to be more than recipes and how tos? Is it going to be like partially a biography or? It's kind of like a love story in recipes. Like it's about sort of falling in love with the cuisine or finding a space like in a cuisine. Like or I just we're I'm I'm editing it right now. We're editing it right now. The document I have right now is like two hundred and seventy pages. So it's That's huge. It's a big book. That's a big yeah. So I think they probably want to trim it a little bit. Is it just like very comprehensive for Basque is it home cooking or restaurant cooking? It's home cooking. But I think our again, like our 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 restaurant cooking is based on home cooking. I think that's why people like it. So yeah, it's home cooking. It is. It's not cursory. You know, it's current. Is what I would call it. It's. It's. I like. I call our cooking kind of neo traditional. Like it's got. A, it's going to have, like, uh, you know, how to make peel peel and how to make uh, really good ink, ink sauce and like all these things that you want to know if you want to make Basque food. But it's definitely our way. And the Basque region is is. I mean, there's a reason it's referred to as like the Basque region. It's it's actually kind of a country within a country mm-hmm. in Spain, and it has a very distinct identity. Yes. So, is there something that you think like helps encapsulate that for people who just think that Basque food is just Spanish food? It's so much easier to describe Basque food by what it's not, and and it's frustrating for me that there are Basque restaurants that have romesco sauce on the menu, and and you know, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, but because I think for me, the key to Basque food is it's not the wine regions and the use of olive oil shows that there is a Mediterranean influence, but it's not a Mediterranean cuisine. How I often think. do you go back there? Once or twice a year. This year, it'll be twice. 
we're going to go nowadays. Do you have like a path that you follow every time you go or do you sort of What's your what's your move when you go to the country? Uh, I I, um, I feel like everybody who goes to the Basque country and goes to Spain is like light years ahead of me because they don't have in-laws and family that they check in with. And so usually we try to attach like one sort of excursion or like some other place. Like, you know, if you, before we opened Lavara, we like hit up on a bunch of we went to the Basque country, but we also went to like Granada, Toledo and uh, Cordoba. So we always are trying to like you know hit something hit something new up. Do you drive? We do drive. I don't drive, but 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 we drive around. My husband drives. I drive here, but I'm kind of afraid to drive there. But I think I need to. I think I'm going to break that fear. We're we're gonna we're actually going to um, Castilla Leon this summer, and so I, it's pretty barren over there. And I think I'll be able to drive. Won't be other cars, or right? Like. Well, and also I just haven't di- driven a stick shift since I lived in Seattle. Oh. I mean, I learned on a stick, but I, I haven't driven one in a long time, and all the rentals are like sticks. And yeah, the great thing, I mean, when I was in the Basque Country, we got a car, and like the great thing is that it's so beautiful, and there's so much stuff, and you can just drive around and like pull off the highway when you see something that looks interesting. Like yeah. there's a farm in the distance with some sign that says like they make cheese, and you're like, I'm gonna go eat your cheese now. Like, and they'll and they'll be so thrilled that you're there. It's amazing. There's so it much sounds like to a discover. great Basque strat. Just if you yeah. see something, just pull off the road. And so now we've come to the time in the eater upsell for a segment we like to call the lightning round. <laughs> Are you ready? Is it like a word association? Yeah, basically. Kind of. We're gonna read We're a lot into whatever you, some, you say. We, we, this is everybody. We're just gonna ask you some questions to find out. Who really is Alex Rye? Oh my God! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought I like you know was pretty open there, but let's see. <laughs> well, buckle up. Okay. Um, I'm nervous. When now. you're on a road trip, speaking of road trips, what album do you blast? Oh my God! So we don't go on road trips. I wish that we did, but lately, what we've been playing the most in our car is Irene Kelly, who's a bluegrass singer. And it's because we went to Nashville not that long ago as a couple, and we brought that CD back for my daughter. What is your airport vice? I don't think I have one. What I don't. What do you mean? I used to smoke like a freight train, but now I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I probably would have gone in one of those rooms, those like crazy smoky rooms that they have in Europe. Oh, at magazines. I would say magazines. I buy fashion magazines. Really? Yes. That's my. That's. Sometimes I have to read them before I even get on the plane because I know once I'm on the plane with my kids, if I'm with my kids, it's not going to be good. Yeah, so fashion magazines. My kids like Beanie Babies. They buy them. They still have Beanie Babies, huh? Oh, my God. It's like the best gift. Like they sell If you them have to airport? go anywhere, they sell them at the airport. You can always find a Beanie Baby. That's amazing. Be- Beanie <laughs> Babies are amazing. Come on. <laughs> when are they born? What's their name? Like, there's so much to know about a Beanie Baby. <laughs> if you were not a cook, what would you be doing with your life? I think I would do something with I, I with textiles or like not so much like design clothes, but I like fabric. Like I like things that are tactile. So I would love to like, you know, source fabric or like, you know, travel and find it or something to do with that kind of thing. That's an, a really incredible answer for you to have at your fingertips as soon as I ask Well, because that. people have asked me that before, and I think that's, I mean, I like that. I like I like that kind of stuff. I also like perfume, not to wear it, but I like, 
the idea of like, you know, making it, though it's very, very hard to make. Hey, it's cocktail hour in heaven, and the bartender is going to make you your favorite drink. It can be anything, wine, beer, cocktails. What is it? It's definitely a gin and tonic, and it, it cannot have lime in it. It's just lemon. Is it like a crazy neo-Spanish, like, tonic kind of crazy thing? I like Plymouth Gin, Fever Tree Tonic, and a, a lemon twist. No lemon juice. Lemon in a gin and tonic has been a revelation for me. I was ride or die for lime for, like, most of my gin and tonic drinking life. And only recently have I been turned on to lemon. It changes everything. It changes everything. And also, like, you know, like, there's nothing worse. Lime is, like, not – it doesn't, like, harmonize. It, like, takes stuff over, I think. And also just bad lime is really bad. Like, oxidative, like, lime is bad. And then it just reminds me – I always say the lime always reminds me of, like, that really bad little gin and tonic that you had at a bar when you went to go hear a band. Like, it reminds you of the worst rail drink you ever had. <laughs> so just cut out the lime. <laughs> What's your favorite kind of social media? I don't prefer any of it. I feel like it's part of my job, but uh, yeah, I'm not. I know just enough to get me in trouble, and I I do. Last question: <sighs> What do you like to make at home? What's your go-to recipe? I make a lot of beans and rice because that's what my um, my kids like. I like simple stuff. We make a lot of eggs, I, a lot of pork chops. I am like I'm a pork chop lamb chop professional. My kids are pretty carnivore-ish. I do a lot of stir fry, not what not in a wok in a regular pan, but but I do stir fry. That sounds great. I'm really hungry right now. Yeah, that's made me very hungry. <laughs> Alex, thanks so much for uh, stopping by the studio today. Thanks for inviting us. me. Yeah, this is such a pleasure. On the next episode of the Eater Upsell, we're going to be joined by Bill Addison, one of Eater's restaurant critics. He's actually a roving critic, so he's traveling all around the country. It's like up in the air, but instead of firing people, he eats at the best restaurants in America. Actually, I never saw that movie. You'd like it, Greg. It's it's like sad and weird. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for the Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com, where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.